0: Here's a few quotes I want to I wanna throw at you. Knowledge is power. Information is liberating. Education is the premise of progress in every society and in every family. Kofi Annan. Passion is energy. Feel the power that comes from focusing on what excites you. Oprah Winfrey. Winfrey. You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you'll find strength. Marcus Aurelius. The greatness of a nation can be judged by the way its animals are treated. Gandhi. I know, I was kind of scratching my head on that one. <laughs> Human greatness does not lie in wealth or power, but in character and goodness. People are just people, and all people have faults and shortcomings, but all of us are born with a basic goodness. And Frank. And then this is my favorite one I must decrease John the Baptist. Can't hear a name into that. People are undoubtedly remembered by their famous quotes. Patrick Henry said, Give me liberty or give me death. And then now we have John the Baptist say, He must increase and I must decrease. And I think that little line right there provides a really good summary of what we need to learn from these verses today. So I have a couple points I want to make today, okay? My first is this don't compete with God. Can you all say, don't compete with God? Okay, so we live in a super competitive world. The Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Yes, and what a finish it was. Golden State won its back-to-back championship and swept the Cavs, right? I don't care about your response. It doesn't matter. We glorify competition. I mean, in fact, just the other day, I was playing dodgeball with my four- and one-year-old. You would think I would let up. Nope, not this guy. I don't care if you can barely walk. You're going to get slammed. Why? Maybe because I'm crazy, but it's because competition is in my blood and therefore should be in juniors too, which is why this is what he would want, right? Everything in life gets turned into a contest, and the casualty of that is often humility. It's humility because we tend to lay aside any humble or realistic assessment of ourselves or of our situation in favor of just beating that guy. Or baby so here we have today in our text there's a guy named John John baptizes people hence John the Baptist okay John the Baptist he finds himself pushed maybe even pressured by his friends into a competitive stance with Jesus but he refuses to get into that trap and in his answers he shows us the way of humility he knows that you can't compete against the Messiah you can't compete against the Lord, and so let me stay, set the stage for us here. Okay, verses 22 to 26 it provides the background. So here we have this overlap going on. This overlap with the ministry of John the Baptist has been going on for quite some time, and then it's overlapped with the public ministry of Jesus that just kind of recently, only really just begun. And so people, being people, they began kind of like throwing in drama into the whole situation, and so arose a dispute. Some of John's followers are kind of concerned about what's going on here. And so many of the, because they realize many of their friends, the the disciples, the the members, if you want to call it, of John, are now leaving and entering into Jesus' fold. So they come to John, reminding him that he, John, remember, you're the one that got Jesus started. You're the one who introduced this guy, Jesus, and you're the one that testified about him. Now look at what's happening, man. He's taking over your turf. And so these friends of John, they obviously wanted John to do something about it, but John's response, it teaches us something here, and that is, don't even try to compete with the Lord. Now John, he's not about being a pushover. John's not a timid guy whatsoever. Instead, he tells his friends that there are reasons to kind of submit and be humble. And I want to encourage all of us here to listen to what those are because it applies to us all, okay? So under that first point, really, I have another point. That is that we become humble people when we understand that God is sovereign, when we understand the sovereignty of God. He takes that from verse 27. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Look, John here, he refuses to get into competition with Jesus because, firstly, he understands that his life, that everything that he is about, rests. On God's sovereignty. He trusts that God's in control, that God has full authority, that God has all the power and all the might and all the power to do and wisdom to do what he wants to do. And he also understands that each person has been given certain things by the Lord and at the same time has not been given certain things. So hear me out, because this is a weird statement, especially for the modern day world. Because we tend to think that if anyone has anything, whether it's like material wealth, possessions, opportunity, talent, or whatever, that somehow if you and I work really hard enough and that we want it enough, then we are somehow entitled to have what he has. That we are entitled to have what she has. But that's not true. God has made us all different. He gave us all different gifts. He endowed us with different levels of ability. And so we're called to be content with where he puts us. And now, by the way, this is not an excuse for laziness. John the Baptist was not lazy by any means. He used his God-given abilities to the greatest extent possible. But at the same time, he felt no compulsion to demand that he had the same abilities, the same results, the same successes, the same accomplishments or popularity as Jesus was having. Why? Because he just trusted in his Father. He trusted in God. You know, there's something powerful about resting in God's sovereignty. God, he's made us all different. And perhaps right now you're playing in your lifetime, this moment you're playing a comparison game, Okay? Some of you all just graduated college and you guys are entering the workforce. Some of you guys have finished grad school or trying to apply to grad school or whatever. We're all playing this comparison game because I got this brother, I got this sister, I got this friend who's doing this much more than I am right now. And I wish, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could beat them at it. I wish I could cook as well as her. Oh, I wish I could play the instrument as well as him and stuff like that. The reality is this, God has made us all different. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're different than me. And praise God for that. Otherwise, we'd be so boring. God has made us all different. And within this body of the church, thank God for that diversity. Right? Thank God for that diversity. Because if we were all the same, we'd be one big unaccomplished group. One big unaccomplished group. We'd be a group with no vision. We need to start delighting in what He has made you to be and also what He has entrusted into your hands. God has given you something. In fact, He's given you a lot of things. But we forget what's before us because we keep looking at those around us. Oh, I can't wait till I make some serious cash like that person or like that person because I'm going to do so much for God, just like what that person's doing. I want to do so much for the church once I start making some serious coin. No, nah, here's, here's the reality. If you're unwilling to part with even a couple bucks right now, there's no way in the world that when you do get money, you're going to be generous with that. Oh, but Pastor David, once I get my life in order, <laughs> have you ever said that before? Once I get my life in order, when's that going to happen? Like, really? Oh, my life will get in order once I get married. Uh-uh. Once I have kids, <laughs> yeah, Right. Once I get my life in order, Pastor, then I'll be able to serve more. I could do Sunday school. I could lead life groups. I could do all this stuff, and I could do so faithfully. No, no, no. Here's the reality. If you're not serving with what little time you've got right now, then, and with the little growing knowledge that you possess, then you're not going to do greater or more things when life has settled down. It's just not going to happen. You've been given something for the here and the now, not for the there and later. You guys feel me? Right? Be content with what you've got, with the gifts that you've been given. Serve the Lord now. There is is a brother or sister in Christ who is in need next to you, not someone that you can just say, hey, I'll wait till I get something to help you with. You can do something right now. You can start praying for them. You can start by just shooting them a text and saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. Don't compete with God, but don't compete with one another either. Because when we start competing with God, then we begin to say and think, God, I can't live with what you've given me because it is not enough for me. In fact, it is not good enough for me. I demand more. That's what we start thinking. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that was being eaten up from the inside with jealousy and strife. He said, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? To learn to rest in God's sovereignty is to learn to be content and to delight in all that God is already doing in you and through you and around you. God may be using other people in your life or in your life groups or in your workplace for greater things, sure. God may be doing some crazy, awesome, very high things with them. But that's, at that point, this is what we do. We, we don't get jealous. We don't start comparing ourselves. Instead, we start celebrating their success. You feel me, right? Right? We start celebrating in their success, celebrating what's being achieved, celebrating what, what, in the ability that at that moment, as hard as it is for you in your life today, that this is a God-given moment where you can learn to trust in his sovereignty, where you can trust and say, God, I still feel like I'm in need, and I wish I could be like that person or do more, but God, I trust that you are leading me, that you are over me. Know that you are blessed You're blessed in so many ways that other people, when they think of you, they're probably thinking, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could be like her. I wish I could have what they they have. So be content with what you have and grow that ability or resource or gifting to honor God, but also to lift others around you. Amen? Secondly, John, he teaches not only being humble in the midst of the sovereignty of God, but he also teaches us something of self-awareness. Okay? In other words... It's about humbly seeing ourselves in terms of our place in God's plan. So John, he refused to get in competition with the Lord Jesus because he had a proper view of himself, meaning that he understood that there was more than simply his life, that there was something called the plan of God, the will of the Father. Verse 28 reads, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, John, he didn't beat himself up at this moment saying, Oh man, I'm junk. I, I'm junk. I'm nobody. I'm worth nothing. No, he understood that God had given him a very important role. But his role, like yours and mine, was a supporting role. You'll never take center stage, folks, as much as you want it. You'll never. We are. Cast as supporting role. We're subject to God's great and unfolding plan. Hallelujah, that God is at center. Right? Think about the burden that you would have. God's at center. This is the way we seek after true humility. That, that's to see ourselves as God sees us. And so our self-esteem is rooted in, not in ourselves or not in our greatness of what we've achieved, but our self-esteem needs to be rooted in the Lord and rooted in His identity and the identity that we have in Him, that identity that He has given to us and the tasks that He has entrusted to us. Our identity is not just as someone who makes money or has babies or, or accomplishes these things or has these diplomas. Our identity is a child of God. Man, if you, surrender your, if you surrender your life to the Lord as a daughter, you are a daughter of the Most High. If you are a guy, you are a son of the Lord. Can you, can you imagine that for a second? We need to stop defining ourselves according to other people's successes and society's expectations. You know, John, he actually takes a few verses here to give us kind of a beautiful picture of how he sees himself, okay? So in verse 29, he calls himself the bridegroom's friend, i.e., the best man. He's the best man. Now, this is what he's saying. He's saying the best man is not in competition with the bridegroom. In fact... He is there to help the bridegroom marry his bride, right? Look, not that it would ever happen with God, but it's like as if the groom got cold feet, right? What does the best man do? Dude, there's a window right there. Go. You're du- I told you not to marry her, right? Of course not. When the bridegroom has what? When he's, when, he's, when he's got cold feet, the best man's job is to remind him of his love for his bride. You can do this. You guys love each other. This is going to be amazing. So imagine, if you will, if you trusted your best man to drive your fiance to the wedding. And along the way, he, the best man, began to think that she belonged to him. So I uh, like five people just put the, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? That she belonged to him, and then, and then when she walked down the aisle, and then there she held his hand, the bridegroom, there the best man was sitting standing next to the groom, and, and he was he was just getting jealous. He was getting jealous that she was marrying him. That would be ridiculous, right? It would be really, really inappropriate, right? It would be downright creepy, right? So here's the thing John knew from many passages in scripture. In the Old Testament, that Israel was, uh, that Israel in the Old Testament and church in the New Testament, they were the bride of God. He knew that. John, he knew that he had this amazing privilege, this privilege to take care of the bride until Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the bridegroom, arrives. How awesome, wonderful of a privilege is that? You know, there's a wonderful part, that's a wonderful part to play. Who wouldn't want to be the best man or the maid of honor? What a joy to see his task complete as God's people began to follow Jesus. And as he gets to see the beautiful union of the bridegroom and bride, and to think that he would want to compete with Jesus for his beloved bride, that would be unthinkable. This is a really big lesson for all of us here, especially for me as a pastor. Because whatever task God has given to you or to me, In his church is only for the sake of helping his bride think about that whenever you serve and whenever you want to serve and you think about the church those people sitting around you think am i helping or am i hurting am i taking away or am i giving is what i'm serving the way that i can give the way that i can pour is it benefiting the person next to me is it glorifying christ above me or am i somehow just ravaging And being so inappropriate and being a little creepy and taking away from the bride and the relationship that she has with the groom. This church is his, amen? Not yours and it's not mine. The minute we begin to protect our turf, the minute we start competing with one another. Maybe it's maybe some committee or some program that we started or wish to start. Maybe it's a spot on the praise team. Maybe it's a role within our life groups. But when we begin to hold on to our church the way that we want it to look, we begin to compete with the Lord. We begin, we begin to compete for effect, for the affection, the attention, and the influence over His bride. You know, John, he enters this new chapter in his life with a deep sense of humility, a humility that understands and rests in the sovereignty of God, and it's a humility that comes from self-awareness that we all get to be and play a part in God's plan as supporting castes. Now, a lot of scholars, they think that this is where John the Baptist ends here, okay, in verse 30. But John the apostle who wrote this gospel, he seemed like wasn't content on leaving it at that, so he writes a commentary, Commentary on why we should be humble, why we should decrease, and why Christ should increase. And so he doesn't just leave it at that, but he feels the need to expound on what John, the great words of John the Baptist, that I must decrease, okay? So John the Apostle, he gives three reasons. Not only, one, is Jesus a witness to the greater things of God. Two, not only does Christ have this amazing and interesting and unique relationship with the Father, but lastly, We need to listen and obey the things that Christ says because our eternity depends on it. The chapter ends with this verse. And it's no coincidence, by the way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, as Moses is dying, his last words to the people of Israel was this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Therefore, he says, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Joshua, in chapter 24 of Joshua, as he was dying, near the end of his life, he sets a very similar challenge to the people of God. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Look, I believe that much of life's greatest moments are concentrated upon people when they're at crossroads. What's alarming is that according to verse 31, we're told something pretty, pretty big. We're told that the wrath of God, the anger that he has towards your sins, that it already hangs over our heads. Our guilt has already sentenced, sentenced us, that we're already determined recipients of God's wrath. And though Jesus has not come to condemn but save us from certain disaster, That does not mean that you and I, for those of us who follow Christ, are on neutral ground. We are still at a crossroad, a crossroad of obedience or rebelliousness, because it's here at this crossroad in your life today that we can either listen, believe, and obey God, or go the opposite way. It's never just about believing, people. Because you can straddle the fence and say, I believe. Uh Uh-uh. It is only when we pick a side, when we follow in obedience that will clarify to us and establish and verify and validate that we are, in fact, choosing Christ, that we know who we stand for and who we stand against. It's true that great men and great women are remembered for their great words, but more than anything else we could ever accomplish, we're simply reminded of John the Baptist because he tells us what's at stake. He tells us what ministry is all about, this thing that we do every week. He tells us what it means to be a disciple. And he says it this way, Jesus must become greater. I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. The only way that we can ever pursue the calling that God has placed upon us is through the way of humility. We can never compete against God by expecting more than what God has already entrusted to us and expects us to use. Never compete against one another, but trust and listen to the words of Christ and you will receive the greatest reward, and that is an eternity with Christ, where you get to revel in his unsurpassing glory, and we all get to be a part of that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this afternoon. The opportunity has come before you and hear your word. We know that you are the good one, the faithful one, the merciful one, the gracious one. How often, Lord, have we lived our lives in such a way where we compete against you, maybe intentionally or not, but we have competed against you. We have competed against you by thinking that we deserve better, deserve more, or deserve less than this pain or tragedy or trial that we're facing today. We compete against one another thinking that somehow it really should be our way, our way and our will rather than your way and your will. God, I pray that you would remind us that you're in control and that's a good thing. That's a great thing for us. Lord, that means we get to rest in your sovereignty. That means that the the greatest surprises in life, good or bad, that they never escape you. You know all. And because you know it all in your wisdom and in your power and your might and in your amazing divine hands In the way that you lead us, God, we know that we are yours and that we're protected. So lead us. Folks, I want to give you just a minute or two to reflect on what you've heard. Maybe we've been approaching the Christian life in a way where we think, well, we got it. I know what to do now. I know my next step. John the Baptist here, who, has been, who was a forerunner of Christ, who was preparing the way even he admits, that you have to decrease. Let Christ be so well-promoted in your life. Let the light of Christ shine so brightly in your day. Humbly submit yourself. Don't say, Jesus, I got this. Say, Jesus, you got me. Lead me now. Okay, let's take a moment and pray.